Did you see Chet Hanks on Z-Way? Yes. Unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, I just don't understand why anyone would want to make a fool out of themselves oh. like that. It's just embarrassing. And I am a huge fan of Thomas Jeffrey Hanks. And I cannot believe that this is the spawn of an American treasure. <laughs> so Chet Hanks is out there doing patois. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he thinks or he what put- he thinks is patois. Or, mm. Yes. And he said he thinks he put it on the map. That's colonizer language. You can't put something on the map that was already on the on map. On the map. Yeah. And so I think it, it really makes me think about people laying claim mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. other people's language and culture mm-hmm. and the way they speak. We see this with people saying, oh, this is TikTok talk. And I'm like, no, no. it's not. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not. And it's just really got our wheels turning, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's time we put it under the microscope. I think this is very important. I'm Titi. And I'm Zakia. And from Spotify, this is Dope Labs. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Accenture Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Dope Labs, a weekly podcast that mixes hardcore science, pop culture, and a healthy dose of friendship. You know, on the show, we love to talk. Mm, too much. <laughs> and this week, we're talking all about how much we love to talk and how it influences how we talk. All of it. Yes. From, you know, where we were born, from where our parents are from, everything influences how we talk. And so this week, we're talking all about linguistics. Specifically, we really wanted to know more about how the science of linguistics shows up in our everyday lives and some of the reasons that we speak the way we do. Yes, let's jump right into the recitation. So what do we know, TT? I think one thing that we know is that language is complex. I mean, when you think about the number of languages in the world, and mm-hmm. how many languages can appear in like small sections of the world. It's really wild. It's such a big part of our culture and how we move through the world. Yes. I think we also know that there's so much nuance, even in the same words that you might say, how you say them. This is reminding me of like a tweet that went around where people were saying, okay, oh, okay. 
Okay. <laughs> like, it was all the different things, like, bruh. Yeah, yeah. Bruh. Like, you know, <laughs> the same word, all these different ways. So even, like, intonation mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. emphasis in different areas can mean so many different things. Mm-hmm. And what we also know is, is that language is influenced by everything that is happening around us. So when we were younger, you know, we spoke a little bit differently. What you mm-hmm. new hip young whippersnappers are saying these days. <laughs> <laughs> we're still trying to catch up. <laughs> oh my goodness. <sighs> TT is 1032 years old. <laughs> Even if we take all of those things into account, mm-hmm. right? There's still so much more I want to understand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, what does it mean? Like, when we consider linguistics as a field, mm-hmm. like, what's the difference between a dialect and an accent? Mm-hmm. And is there a such thing as an American accent? Right. You know, like, because it's just a melting pot. That's a good point. I want to know the linguistic history in the United States. And mm. I think specifically for us, I want to know some of the roots of Black or African-American vernacular English, like where we got some of our terminology from. Yes. It's reminded me of when my friend from the Midwest recently said, well, better lick your calf over. And I was like, (laughs) this is a real cowboy. (laughs) (laughs) She comes from a long line of cowboys. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's jump into the dissection. Our guest for today's lab is Dr. John Baugh. I'm the Margaret Bush Wilson Distinguished University Professor at Washington University in St. Louis, and I am currently president of the Linguistic Society of America. Dr. Baugh has written several books on linguistics and is known for his theory on linguistic profiling, which happens when people discriminate against others based on the way that they talk. So let's start with some linguistics basics. We asked Dr. Baugh to break down what he means by linguistic science. Linguistics is the science that tries to evaluate what all human languages have in common, including sign language, and to evaluate those commonalities through some shared scientific principles and methodologies. And my own specialty is called sociolinguistics, which takes all of this linguistic science and then looks at it in a social realm. It really is a science. You can measure and break down all of the elements in language. Okay, so linguistics is the study of languages, and there are thousands of different languages in the world. Many of them are very different from one another, but Dr. Baugh says they all have certain elements in common. They all have a sound system produced through articulation that divides into meaningful units of sound, whether it's full words or prefixes or suffixes. And then they have to be strung together in a grammatical sequence to have meaningful utterances. Dr. Ball says that we can see this in English with the prefix un. Un by itself doesn't mean anything. But when you use it as a prefix, it means not. So like unfulfilled means not fulfilled, or unreal means not real. And whether you're a fan of prefixes or not, one thing that we know is that where you grew up in the world can determine how you speak a language. Right. We were just talking about this. I feel like if I'm on the phone with somebody for like 30 seconds, I can figure out, oh, this person is from the East Coast, or they're from the West Coast, or they're from the South, like my friend 
who is <laughs> Southern, okay? <laughs> and sometimes even when I hear Southern folks, mm-hmm. depending on what we're talking about, there might be some key words in there. And if I listen long enough, I can maybe narrow down the state. <laughs> And I feel the same way about folks that are from the area of the country where I'm from. So I'm from Maryland. And so they call the D.C., Maryland and Virginia area the DMV. And there's some slang or ways of speaking that people from the D.C. metro area, the way that they speak. So I I can usually I hear that and I'm like, oh, what's up? Titi's being modest. (laughs) I have seen her say that person is from D.C. That person is from the neighboring county. (laughs) Okay, PG County. And then this other person is from Baltimore. Yeah, because Baltimore is not a part of of what I'm talking about. Baltimore is its own separate state. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we have different accents, but somebody recently told me that they can't tell the difference between us on the podcast. You and And so I want you to. Yes. So I really want you to let that sink in. I don't know what that Welcome means. Welcome to the South. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'll, I'll take it as a compliment. I feel like we have very different accents and speak very different dialects at times. <laughs> but Dr. <laughs> Ball explained to us the difference between dialect and accent. When someone speaks a dialect of a language, that means that they do so in a way that has unique grammatical properties. And that often intersects with the fact that speakers of different dialects will also have shared accents, but accents are based on your pronunciation. Okay, so some examples of different accents in English are Southern United States, that's your girl, (laughs) Midwestern, New England, and New York. And there's a bunch of other ones too. Yeah. Some examples of dialects of English in the United States are Southern, again, (laughs) African-American English and Appalachian English. And within these accents and dialects, there's still even finer kind of differences. So there's variation based on region, generation, socioeconomic status, so many other factors that we can't even name. So let's take a minute for a poll because, TT, I know you have a very good ear and uh-huh. you can tell somebody's accent in the United States where they're from. But I wonder if everybody else can too. I feel like it's easy for a lot of people. Okay, so check the app right now and tell us which one of these accents can you easily distinguish? No problem, no trouble. Just hands down, I know this person's from the Midwest. Hands down, I know they're from the Southern U.S. I want to hear from you. Dr. Baugh told us about the concept of linguistic dexterity, and that's when people have the ability to modify their speech based on their environment. I think that's a really great point, TT. And I really like the term linguistic dexterity because it feels like it's dignifying the skill that it takes to use language in different ways to connect and communicate with people from different backgrounds. And we see this happening also with native English speakers, depending on their environment. We call this code switching, but Dr. Baugh says that it's technically a little bit of a misnomer. Code switching is a term that's used quite commonly by a lot of Americans. But if you're looking at it from a scientific point of view, what most people mean when they're talking about Black people who code switch is in linguistics either called bidialectalism or style shifting. And that's because you're not changing languages. Mm. We talk about style shifting a lot. Yes, absolutely. Like when we started doing Dope Labs, that was really important to us to not 
style shift. Yes. And to speak authentically to who we are based off of our life experiences and where we grew up. Right. And to be honest, we've received some pushback, right? People have said, oh, you should sound Mm -hmm. more academic or more scholarly. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, this is what a scholar sounds like. Exactly. You know, (laughs) like, oh, you don't sound like a PhD. Well, I have one. So by default, (laughs) it is. Dr. Bao helped highlight the difference between the two. Style shifting is happening more along a continuum, whereas code switching is when you have complete switching of languages. And then even with code switching, there are distinctions between something like Spanglish, which is a mixture of Spanish and English, and code switching where part of the sentence might be English, and then you flip and then have the other part of the sentence exclusively in Spanish. Whereas Spanglish actually kind of combines elements of some English words with Spanish words. Whew, that is a lot to wrestle. Honestly, it, it it's a lot. And when you think about it, I mean, and the linguistic dexterity of it all, what we are able to achieve through language is fascinating. And people are able to do it at the drop of a dime. So quickly. It makes me think about people from immigrant communities who speak English as a second or third or even fourth language. They're going to have a lot more linguistic dexterity than someone who was born in the U.S. and raised in an English-only household. If you've ever tried to learn a language, you know that the sentence structure changes, how we handle verbs are differently than a lot of other languages. And so it doesn't always overlay perfectly. And so it, it can be really tough. I think it sounds like a superpower to have this type of linguistic dexterity and the ability to style ship at the drop of a dime. But that's not how folks are treated, like, in everyday life. And it's just like everything in our society. Racism plays a huge role in how society deems people who are in the linguistic majority versus the minority. You have many well-educated speakers of mainstream dominant forms of American English who have very little linguistic dexterity, but because they speak from a position of linguistic privilege, they are not penalized for their lack of linguistic dexterity, right? The burden is always upon the group who is not the dominant group. And we could take it international. You can go to France or Germany or England and the well-educated speech of the upper classes is the norm by which everyone else is judged. And then that's true here in the United States, except for one wonderful exception. And that's the fact that many very wealthy, educated Americans, most of them tend to be white, often speak with different regional dialects. We see this beautifully displayed in Congress and the Senate. You don't see somebody saying to Lindsey Graham, oh, you need to sound more like a TV broadcaster, right? Lindsey Graham's going to sound like the Southern senator he is. And oh, by the way, that's helpful to him in his political context, right? You know, when sometimes people say, oh, there are sometimes terms, there are sometimes mm-hmm. accents. Those are the hidden signals that, oh, this person is like me, you know, where mm-hmm. we get different people associating grouping and social grouping mm-hmm. um, when they hear someone speak. Mm-hmm. This also makes me think about the 
linguistic heritage. Mm. When we talk about the South, right? Yeah. The heritage and, and what has happened historically and how that's influenced linguistics. And so, you know, we both want to learn more about the linguistic heritage of Black people in the United States and to understand how history has shaped the words and phrases that show up in African-American dialects specifically in the past and the present. There are unique properties to the linguistic dexterity exhibited by African-Americans. And then we need to take into account that at this point in time, not all African-Americans are slave descendants, right? So the linguistic legacy that we're speaking of has to do with the fact that slavery created a unique set of linguistic circumstances that are not shared by any other group that came. The transatlantic slave trade stole people from their lives in Africa, taking away their freedom, family, culture, and languages, and so much more. This experience is unique to the victims of the slave trade. Every immigrant group that's come to the United States of their own volition, in other words, they decided, come on, y'all, we're going to pack up. We're moving to America, right? Where it was their decision, where they were not enslaved. They did so with others who spoke their same language. That's why we have communities where Polish, Italian, German, Korean, Russian, Japanese, Vietnamese, they all came to America intact. So how come no African language made it across? Some people with racist stereotypes would say, well, because, well, the Black people aren't smart enough to remember their language. No. When African people were captured during the Atlantic slave trade, they were often separated by language to restrict and limit their ability to communicate and to prevent uprisings. One of the very first things they did, even before the Atlantic crossing, was let's divide them up. Who speaks Twi? Who speaks Igbo? Separate them. And so that created a situation where you've already got dislocation from the mother tongue even before you board the slave ships. You've already snatched somebody from their family. You're about to put them into slavery for the rest of their lives. They're going to be trying to figure out how to escape. Well, if everybody speaks the same language, they're going to be conspiring pretty quickly. This intentional separation and denial of language continued once enslaved people arrived in America. Once you get to America, and you're put on the auction block, it's illegal to teach you to read and write, okay? You don't get to go to school. There's no such thing as a public school for slaves. You're out there in the plantation. We need you picking cotton. So where do you get exposed to English? You get exposed to English by the white slave overseer. Well, turns out most of them, they didn't get here by their own choice. They happened to be, for the most part, indentured servants from Scotland and Ireland. And they would say things like, the bucket done be over yonder in their brogue. Well, that done be over yonder, you hear black people say all the time, I, I be done told you that. That's from the Scots-Irish and the fact that we were denied access to schools for hundreds of years. That linguistic fossilization, which is grammatically productive, is passed from one generation to the next in a very useful way. I really like that phrase, grammatically productive. People understand it, and when you think about the words, they make sense. Absolutely. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll get into more of the linguistic nuances of Black American English. Oh, oh. 
Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. We're back, and don't get too sad, but next week we're going to be out of the lab. Don't worry, don't worry, we've got you covered with one of our favorite labs until we return. Before the break, we talked about the linguistic heritage of Black people in the United States and how the legacy of slavery shows up in our speech today. Now that we understand that the slave trade was integral to the way African-American dialects formed in resistance to the violence of white supremacy, we want to understand some of the linguistic differences that we hear in these dialects. So African-Americans who are familiar with the colloquial vernacular dialect will know well that one of the common words used in ways that are not similar to other dialects of English is the word be, as in, you know, they be talking, right? Or she be sick. And what a lot of people don't realize is that doesn't mean the same thing as she is sick, or sometimes that particular expression where is would be used, the word is doesn't appear. They just say she's sick. Like we learned earlier, different dialects have their own unique grammar, and it's not as simple as swapping out one word for another. The grammar allows for meaning to change. And we see people doing it wrong on the internet all the time, and I'm like, that's not not for you. Mm -hmm. Talk about what you know about. Mm. Come on, somebody. So what's the difference between he happy and he be happy? He be happy means he's usually happy all the time. It's a habitual state of affairs. He happy, or he's happy, or he is happy, could be a momentary state. Unfortunately, because of the history of the country, when people didn't know anything about linguistics and slaves would say things like, you know, I be going to the store or we be jumping, they would say, oh, you know, they're not educated. They don't understand English properly. And this just goes back to that myth where people think that they can tell how educated someone is based on the way that they talk. The next example is Ben. Dr. Baugh discusses the research of his colleague, Dr. John Rickford, a professor of linguistics at Stanford University. The difference between the emphasis on the word Ben, as in B-E-E-N, as in we've been to the movies. And the difference that he pointed out is if you ask someone, is your sister married? If you answered, oh, she'd been married, okay? That means not only is she married now, she's been married a long time. But if you said she'd been married, that means she's no longer married, but she used to be. In this example, the difference in meaning comes from the tonal difference in the word been. English is not a tonal language, but some African languages are tonal languages. So the slaves hearing the word been began to impose a grammatical distinction using tone that was not part of English. And again, because they weren't going to school, there wasn't anybody correcting them. 
it's so amazing how black people are able to maintain that tonal aspect of their native languages in the creation of this new dialect of English. Like one of my favorite words that has a lot of different Mm -hmm. intonations, I guess, or tonalities Mm -hmm. is all right. (laughs) Like, all right. (laughs) Like, all right. (laughs) <laughs> that kind of like, all right, we're going <laughs> to keep messing around. It's going to be a problem. Or, all, all right. right. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> all right. Got you. Right? Like, it's just uh, so many things. Ah, I feel like, okay, too. And bet. And baby. <laughs> baby. Baby. <laughs> <laughs> the next example is one that a lot of people have opinions on. The way we say ask. So A-S-K. And mm. how some folks say acts. Mm. So, like, different pronunciations for the same word. Yes. So, ask and how some people say, oh, can I ask you a question? The linguistic term for this is metathesis, where you invert two sounds. If you're a parent of a child, when your child was growing up, they said paschetti rather than spaghetti. Now, why would they do that? Well, technically, having the syllable S before a P and then a vowel sound is difficult to produce. Whereas Paschetti has a consonant followed by a vowel, then followed by an S sound. Well, it turns out that ask, a vowel, and then what we in linguistics call a sibilant consonant, and then a stop consonant, is more difficult to produce than a vowel followed by a stop consonant. So ax versus ask is easier to pronounce in terms of just the phonology of it. And some people say, oh, well, won't they get confused because an axe is a tool? Well, an axe is also a noun, and ask is a verb. So therefore, if I say, let me ask you a question, unless you don't speak English, you're not going to assume that the person has substituted a noun for a verb. Those two pronunciations live quite compatibly. Let me tell you something. Hey, tell it. I want to go all the way back to the fifth grade. No, actually, it was second grade, Mrs. Schmidt. And <laughs> <laughs> shots fired. <laughs> and I would always, I would say, ask. Oh, I want to ask a question. She'd be like, no, I, I don't want you to ask me. And I'd be like, mm, that's okay. humiliating. And just like we you talked about You knew what I was things, talking about. Exactly. Like, you were talking about a noun and a verb. And you know, you know. And so language is a tool to communicate how, uh, everything. And when folks try and box you in to only speak it in a certain way, it prevents that dexterity that Dr. Ball was talking about. So when we're talking about they knew what you were talking about. grammatic productivity, you knew what I was talking about and you knew it made sense. You were just giving me a hard time. <laughs> Dr. Ba's next example is about the linguistics of hip-hop. Not only do people notice these linguistic differences, you get some pride taking place, right? So this slang term fat comes into existence. Oh, that's fat. But it's spelled P-H-A-T in the rap culture. Let's think about that. Did those young brothers that came up with that, were they really thinking, oh, that's pahat? No. They had taken the English classes that showed them that Philip was spelled P-H, and they're like, oh, so P-H is the F sound. Okay, well, if P-H is F, and fat is a slang term, and I spell it with P-H, but I pronounce it fat, I'm reinforcing my linguistic 
loyalty to my culture. That's another great one that I like. Reinforcing my linguistic loyalty to my culture. And when you learn about that rich linguistic culture and heritage, Mm -hmm. it just makes you feel even stronger that those phrases and dialects should be preserved and that we should continue to exercise our linguistic dexterity. It also makes me think about, mm, oh my God, (laughs) when we see non-Black people trying to use phrases or words in a dialect that they didn't grow up with. And so we see them doing this a lot. I see it a lot on social media, but they're using it in the wrong way, trying to look cool. Uchile. <laughs> yes. You mean woo child. Yes. And we talked about cultural appropriation in Black music in last week's episode. Yes. But we wanted to know what Dr. Ba thought from a linguistic perspective about the mainstream consumption and use of African-American English and its impact on the dialect and meaning of the words. So as a linguist, one of the things that's important to realize is that all languages constantly undergo change. And so when people adopt a style of speaking that's not native to them, you have to ask, what's their motivation? And when I was a child, and we're talking in the 1950s and 1960s, the vast majority of times that you would see whites imitating black speech was in a very overt racist and discriminatory way. That's very different than 14-year-old white boys that trying to sound like Tupac, who they think of as kind of an urban hero. And they're not coming from a place of racism when they try to say it. But it's still not right. Yeah. It might not be coming from a place of racism, but it's still not right. And I think it makes me think about on Z-Way's show recently, she talked to Chet Hanks mm-hmm. and about him saying that he thought he was putting Patois on the map. Kind, no. sir. <laughs> <laughs> That's and how you I'm being know. generous. Yeah. yeah. You're totally oblivious. You're not appreciating the rich linguistic heritage here. No. He's just doing a caricature of it and for clicks and likes, which is not what it's about. And nobody's saying he must be dumb because he's not speaking in a certain way, the way they would if a mm-hmm. native Patois speaker was speaking, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Same thing for the adoption of different phrases from Black American English. Let me tell you. I think those examples really point to how aspects of Black culture and speech have become popular and valuable in mainstream media, but it's often non-Black people who are profiting off of that culture and history that we created and experienced. Dr. Ba told us about a concept he coined called econolinguistics, and that's when your linguistic behavior has economic relevance. From an econo-linguistic perspective, the slave-descendant dialects have historically been devalued. But in the contemporary context, the econo-linguistics of the ability to rap can actually make you a lot of money. Jay-Z is a billionaire. I'm old enough that I remember the difference in reaction to Vanilla Ice as opposed to Eminem, right? And Eminem is seen as being more authentic, right? He grew up in Detroit in Eight Mile. He knows what to say and enough about Black culture that his adoption of the vernacular is seen as respectful. But there's a white woman who's from Australia who tries to rap in Black dialect. That's Iggy Iggy. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think that's what he's talking about. <laughs> yes, that is who he's talking about. It's strange and it's problematic, you know, Iggy Azalea, because why do you talk? Like, it just doesn't even make sense. You would think that she would rap like an Australian would rap, but she doesn't. How? She's rapping like she grew up with Trina <laughs> and Mia X. And I'm like, you don't know nah, one of them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my goodness. But I think that nuance about Eminem and Iggy Azalea is really important to recognize. This feels like a little bit of the conversation I've seen online about Jack Harlow. Like, I Mm -hmm. think a lot of Black folks feel like if you didn't grow up in these neighborhoods, then you don't understand. And sometimes people are overdoing it. And it's like, are you making fun of us? Like, you know, what is it really about? But then there are also people that feel like they're really respecting the art and the culture and the history. So I think about Mac Miller, who had Mm -hmm. a very different reception, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it can just really be contentious. And it really depends on how you came up. There's so much to talk about when it comes to linguistics. And we've only talked about a small slice today. But before we wrapped up with Dr. Bob, we wanted to learn about the linguistics behind sign language. The basic thing with sign language is that when a baby can't hear, their brain still has the capacity to process language. And if they're fortunate enough to be in an environment where they're exposed to sign language users, that developing brain will then begin to process visually what the developing child processes through their brain auditorily. If you're too young, you don't know how to read and write. Well, if you're a young signer, you don't know how to fingerspell. So fingerspelling comes in later, but it's just as complex, if not more complex, than speech. And it goes through a different modality. So sign language, you know, encoded through your eyes, it uses gesture. Dr. Boss said it's very important for brain development for children to start learning a language regardless of if it's sign language or spoken language. And this will help them later when they learn to read and write. Dr. Boss shared that deaf and hard of hearing people have their own experiences with linguistic bias and discrimination. All of them, regardless of background, are strong proponents of linguistic human rights. Deaf people get linguistic discrimination, right? Because they're at McDonald's signing. And depending upon how people react to them, I mean, for heaven's sakes, people used to say deaf and dumb, right? So the stereotype that if you can't hear, you're less intelligent is very similar to, oh, if you speak with a slave descendant dialect, you must not be as smart. And Dr. Ba also revealed a little more history within the deaf community, sharing that African-Americans tended to be isolated from white Americans and develop their own dialect of sign language. There's actually a Black dialect of sign language. Essentially, the best way that I can describe the differences there is it's got more soul. It's got more movement. Black signers are just using a lot more emphasis in their gestures. There's a lot more body movement. That's so amazing to hear. It shows that Black folks, no matter our circumstance, we persist. We push through and have the mental fortitude to make a way for ourselves. And I love that. If you take anything away from this conversation today, one thing is please appreciate the unique linguistic heritage of slave descendants. It is different than every other immigrant group. Please 
try to be accepting of others whose linguistic backgrounds are different from your own. And that applies to everybody. And if we can be more accepting, not just that you tolerate these people, but that you actually accept the fact that if you live in the United States, your fellow citizens are going to come from very diverse linguistic backgrounds. If we all do our best to try to understand one another, that will be progress of a certain kind. All right, all right. It is time for One Thing, TT. What's your one thing this week? My one thing this week is a clothing brand that is definitely new to me. It's called Kids of Immigrants, and it was founded by Daniel Buezo and Wele Dennis, and they are based in Los Angeles. And the mission statement is Kids of Immigrants is a movement to recognize that we are all cut from different fabrics, but together we make a whole. And it's such an amazing brand. I really love all the stuff that they put out. Things sell out very quickly, but if you get your hands on something, it is really great streetwear. On almost all of their items, they have this little patch that says, shout out to immigrant parents who came here with nothing but gave us everything, which I love. You know, my parents are both immigrants. Yes. Shout out to all the immigrant kids. Love it. What's your one thing? My one thing is a book this week. Mm-hmm. I'm back on my reading streak. Yes, yes, yes. I want to hear it. I want to hear it. Okay, so you know we did this episode before about science denial. Yes. And people ask us all the time, like, how do you help people understand this is the science? You know, we talked to Dr. Barbara Hofer and Gail Sinatra. Yes. And they had a book about science denial. Mm-hmm. There's a new book out that's called How Minds Change. It's from David McRaney, who mm-hmm. hosts the podcast You Are Not So Smart. Okay. I think if feels like the next step. So once we figure out what's making people Mm -hmm. believe certain things, how do we get them to change their mind? Mm. And what's the science behind that? So I just got that book in the mail and I'm reading it now. So that's my one thing this week. I can't wait to hear all about it and read it myself. Yes, you know I'm going to pass it to my friend. Pass it to your neighbor. All right, that's it for this lab. Did this make you think about anything? Did it make you look at some of your favorite internet personalities who are adopting some different dialects, accents? If it did, let us know. If it didn't, we want to know that too. Call (laughs) us at 202-567-7028 and tell us what you thought about this lab. And don't forget, you can always give us an idea for a lab that you want to hear this semester. That's 202-567-7028. And don't forget that there is so much more to dig into on our website. There'll be a cheat sheet for today's lab, additional links and resources in the show notes. Plus, you can sign up for our newsletter. Check it out at dopelabspodcast.com. Special thanks to today's guest expert, Dr. John Baugh. You can find out more about his work and his TED Talk on our website, dopelabspodcast.com. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at dopelabspodcast. TT's on Twitter and Instagram at dr underscore t-s-h-o. And you can find Zakia at Z said so. Dope Labs is a Spotify original production from Megaome Media Group. Our producers are Jenny Radlett Mass and Lydia Smith of Wave Runner Studios. Our associate producer from Megaome Media is Brianna Garrett. Editing and sound design by Rob Smirciak. Mixing by Hannes Brown. Original music composed and produced by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Sugiur. From Spotify, creative producer Miguel Contreras. Special thanks to Shirley Ramos, Jess Borison, Yasmin Afifi, Camus Elolia, Till Kratke, and Brian Marquis. 
Executive producers from Mega O Media Group are us, T.T. Shodia and Zakia Watley. 